is a little bit different because it is, it is a, um, it's added to the already existing scriptures after Jesus is gone. So we really don't have um, a clear statement from, from Christ that the New Testament is the New Testament, right? So that it is God's word. So turn with me to John 16. John 16, verses 12 and 13. John 16, verses 12 and 13. Mary, would you like to read that for me? Uh, 12 and 13. Chapter 16, 12 and 13. that are to come. <laughs> Very good. Um, okay, so in this, in this uh, passage, who is Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to the disciples. Um, and often, sometimes, we will read this passage and we will automatically personalize it. So Gary will say, oh... God's given me the Holy Spirit so that he will guide me into all truth. Right? See? But who is, who is being spoken to here? The apostles. So when Jesus says that he has many things that he has not spoken to them yet, because they can't bear them yet, what is, he, what is the uh, immediate focus or the immediate um, fulfillment of Jesus' words? Well, the, yeah, but he's, he says, I, there's, let me read it to you. I still have many things to say to you. So they need the crucifixion and the resurrection to occur, right? That has to happen first. But then he still has many things to say to them. That's the New Testament. And what is the New Testament? The New Testament is an is a explanation of the cross and the resurrection, but it's also a... In light of the cross, here's the new theology, kind of. Like, here's, here's the response of that. Things that you couldn't get before, this is, this is what's happening. So, um, well, yes. So, like, so um, because Jesus won't be here to directly speak to them, right, the Holy Spirit is the one that's going to give them the truth. Now, think about this. Uh, how you could misinterpret this. You could be like, I don't need the scriptures. Jesus is going to just speak to me directly. Right? I mean, that, if you took this as a general promise to everyone, that he will guide everyone into all truth, and then we, we don't then see the New Testament as being distinct. Now, I do believe that this passage has application to each one of us. But it has application that he is going to guide the rest of us into all truth through the New Testament, which he has given to his apostles. So this is the Spirit being the author of the New Testament. Yes, that's exactly right. 
Now, it doesn't mean that there's not going to be a part of the Holy Spirit actually taking the Word of God and applying it to your heart, because that, that's important as well. But, um, but this idea that he's giving to them the promise, he's setting the church up for that there will be new revelation. It will come through you after I've risen from the dead, that I will speak to you, okay? Um, <clears throat> One of the implications of the resurrection is that there's no longer a distinction between Jews and Gentiles among God's people. So turn to Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. Uh, who's got that? You still, who's got the mic there, Clay? Give it to Benji. He can read for us. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Okay, good. So a couple things you see here. One... Uh, Paul is talking to Ephesians, who many of them are Gentiles, and he's telling them that they are together with the Jewish saints, one people of God. Okay, You can imagine how that would have been um, really, really difficult for Jesus to explain to his disciples prior to his uh, rising from the dead, right? Because the, the cross abolished, it, it gave it the form of cleansing that that superseded all the old Jewish ceremonies, and, and it also um, um, it, it made Christ the root of salvation rather than Israel, the people, so that Israel, the Gentiles and Israelites are just two branches to the same tree. Those kind of, I mean, those kind of things are just clearer after Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Um, but notice that this big truth, this idea that there's only one people, there's not a Jewish people and a Gentile people, it is, how do, where do we get this foundation? What's the foundation of it? Christ, but what does it say in the text? Apostles and prophets, right? So, so these apostles are the ones that establish these truths, and you can see this in the book of Acts, you know, uh, Peter uh, goes to Cornelius' house and the Spirit goes to the Gentiles and all these kind of things get done so that there's one people of God. So it's, it's, um, it's there. So these apostles' teaching is seen as the very foundation of any new theology of the church. Okay, it's on the apostles' foundation. Turn to Acts 2. Acts 2, verses 42 and 43. Uh, Peter, why don't you read that for me? Here comes the mic, quickly. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Okay, again, what we're seeing here 
is not necessarily that every person in the church is, is receiving all of this, um, this foundational New Testament teaching, but that the apostles have the authority, they have been given signs and wonders to attest to their authority, and the church devotes themselves to the apostles' teaching, Right? So in our day, if we were to apply uh, devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, what would we be devoting ourselves to? The New Testament, right? We're not looking for apostles today to do this. The apostles were the foundation. The Bible is the, what we're devoting ourselves to, and particularly the New Testament, okay? Uh, one more, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, which we'll get into. We'll get into 1 Corinthians in a little bit. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28. So, uh, John, you want to read that for me? And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Okay, again, just we talking about all these spiritual gifts, but notice he is appointed in the church first apostles. They had the highest uh, authority in the early church. Uh, same thing in Acts uh, or Ephesians 4. Turn over to Acts 15 for a moment. Try to go through these rather quickly here. Don't get bogged down. Acts 15, what's the title of this this chapter? Okay, does anybody know what was happening in the Jerusalem council? Right, they're trying to figure out, like, do the Gentile Christians, how much of the Old Testament law do the Gentile Christians have to accept when it's, I'm talking about ceremonial law, not the moral Ten Commandments, but, but like how much do they have to accept? And so there's a big debate. How much are we going to make the Gentiles do? What's interesting in this passage is if everything was built on the apostles' authority, and I'm not going to go through this passage, but, but there were apostles at this council. But the apostles do not just say, I have complete authority. This is what's going to happen. They don't do that. They actually wait for the entire, they, the, the apostles try to convince the elders that are at this council, and the elders vote on what would be the, the decision. So we already see in Acts 15 that the apostolic authority is beginning to be shared by the elders. Right here in the book of, the, of Acts, it's happening, okay? So what we're seeing is this special apostolic authority of this divine truth that was given to the apostles is not something that will be perpetual. There's not an expectation that these apostles will just continue to be getting revelation and that the church will just submit to them and there'll be some kind of succession of apostles after them, okay? In fact, Paul calls himself the last of the apostles, abnormally born, um, uh, in this way. So, so then you get to uh, turn over to the book of Titus, chapter 1, verse 5. 
Titus chapter 1, verse 5. So Paul, who considered himself an apostle, and he was apostle, he wasn't one of the 12, but he was uh, one of those early apostles with the authority. That's why he writes so much of the New Testament. Um, he is uh, talking to Titus, and he's, he's actually giving Titus authority to, 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 do, uh, to establish leaders in the church. So somebody read uh, Titus 1.5 for me. Shannon, can you read that? You have it? Okay. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Okay, so here, well, there's not even any mention of apostles. Now, Titus is one of the, the later books of the New Testament. It's one of the uh, ones further down the road. And, and Paul's not saying, okay, I'm an apostle. Titus, I'm going to make you an apostle, and therefore you have absolute authority, and then when you choose to give it to someone else, you make them an apostle. No, no mention of apostles at all. He's just talking about elders in the churches, okay? Uh, turn to 2 Thessalonians 3.6. Second Thessalonians 3.6. This, you better read this one close because this is the one that's going to have, um, I'm going to ask you a specific question you're going to have to get. So, uh, Brad, you want to read it for me? Second Thessalonians 3, 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the traditions that you receive from us. All right, now here he is. He is actually telling them, you got to get away from this person because they're, they're, they're straying from the truth. But what does he call the truth here? Tradition. And not just any tradition, it's tradition received from us. Who's the us? The apostles, the foundation of the apostles. So already there is a tradition uh, right off the bat that the apostles' teaching is, is more than what we use as tradition, right? It's an authoritative tradition that was founded on the apostles that has now been handed down to them. You have to understand, right now, they don't have the whole Bible. They don't have the whole New Testament. They just have, you know, the, the apostles' teaching and tradition, maybe a letter written to this church or a letter written to that church, but, but they see this tradition not in the way we call tradition, something just kind of happened. It is actually a tradition received from the elders that has been handed down to them. And if somebody steers away from it, they are steering into falsehood and need to be, you need to warn people about it. Because we would never say, oh, the traditions at Faith Church, if we, we have some practices, you know, we hold our services at Sunday school at 945 and and worship at 11. And if you steer away from that tradition, that's idleness. You know, no, no. So here they're using tradition in terms of the authoritative apostolic teaching that they receive from the Holy Spirit. 
when Jesus Christ taught them after the resurrection. So you're, you just, just see this progression, okay? Now turn to 2 Peter 3. Second Peter three fifteen and sixteen, um, Jerry Payne. You want to read that for me? Got it or not? I always wonder if somebody's got it on their phone. I, yeah. <laughs> and count the patience of our Lord <laughs> salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks them, uh, speaks in them of these matters uh, there are some things that in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant or unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures all right so what do you see here i'll just give you the background peter is is, is saying good things about paul right and some people there's some things paul says are hard to understand we can all attest to that um and he says that uh, some people try to twist Paul, okay? And then what does he say at the end of this? How, what does he compare Paul's writings to? The scriptures, okay? What is very imp- important, see, the church gives immediate acceptance to the words of these apostles as the word of God, just like Jesus gave his attention to the Old Testament scriptures and declared them to be the word of God, Peter is saying, yeah, what Paul writes is not just Paul's ideas. He has received revelation from God just like in the Old Testament scriptures. You following that, how important this is? Uh, and then 1 Thessalonians 2.13 First Thessalonians 2.13. Uh, Christian, you want to read? Yeah, I see. <laughs> I'm testing all the people that have their phones out that they're actually looking at the, the scriptures. No, oh I would God. never have doubted, Christian, but Jerry was a little shaky. I wasn't sure. <laughs> and we also thank God constantly for this, that uh, when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it is, it really is, the word of God, which is at work in your, in you believers. All right, now see how many wonderful things are here. So Paul, um, not only does Peter say that Paul's writing is, is the word of God, but Paul himself says, when you heard me speak, you didn't take it as just my words. You took it as the very word of God. And that's what it really is. Right? You see, you see how that, that he's going on? And then he says that this word is at work in you as a believer. And this is why I'm talking about the incarnation of the word of God. The word of God originates in God. It's a divine thing, right? It is It is brought down to earth and worked into the one who speaks or writes the word of God. So that's kind of a, an incarnation of the word coming down to, 
to our realm. But then it does another thing, and that same word actually works in your heart to change you, right? So just as Christ comes down and takes on flesh, so God is taking the word of God, which is his, and he's put it into your soul so that what? You become conformed to God. That's what it means, the word of God working in your heart. So when you come to church, when you study the word of God, it's not just a human activity. It actually is God doing his work in you as you accept that it's really God's word. That faith is important. I mean, I've, I remember being in, in college and a professor being very uh, understanding of the word of God, but having no faith at all, treating it just like a book. And how, it's like, wait a minute, are you kidding me? This is the life-transforming word of God. So when this book sits on our shelves and is not read, we're actually like saying, we we don't want the word in our hearts. (laughs) You know, we should want it. That's why saints throughout history have always been uh, consumed with being able to read the word of God, being able to understand the word of God, those kind of things. That's what's driven the church throughout the ages. Okay, so the church immediately gives acceptance to the word of God. It doesn't wait. Like the people in Thessalonica don't go, "Mm, let me wait and see if uh, there's a, um, some kind of board, a Christian board somewhere that will determine if what Paul wrote was actually the word of God. But if you're in a, if you're in a, especially a, a college class on the on the New Testament, especially Bart Ehrman down at UNC, they're going to tell you that well, they didn't really know if it was the Word of God. Not at first. Later on, a couple centuries later, the church decides what books are the Word of God and which books are not. That's just a lie. Whenever the Word of God was spoken through this apostolic authority, the churches that received it would gave it immediate embracing of it. And it was the word of God from the time it was spoken. Okay, but this is important because we got to get to your Bible, what you have today. Paul wrote a letter, we'll just say to the one of Thessalonica, right? He writes to Thessalonica, we just read that passage that they received it as the word of God. Well, the people in Thessalonica say, man, this is awesome. So someone in the church of Thessalonica makes a copy of Paul's letter and sends it over to somewhere else. And it circulates, and it goes all around. But the people that received it in another place, they received it as a letter. There's like more go-betweens, right? I mean, it's like they received it as a letter from their friend that was a letter of Paul's, right? Does that make sense? And so as you can imagine, as this gets further and further from the source from Thessalonica, it becomes less and less clear, is this written by Paul? Is it truly what Paul wrote? Did somebody else write it? Is it, you know, so you can have all these questions that arise, but not because they're really questioning whether Paul was an apostolic authority, but because as that wider circulation occurred, it became more and more difficult to know, is it truly Pauline? And then what else is happening as the church is growing? And as more and more people are being transformed by the word of God, I'll pick on Sam. Sam's just a guy in a church, and he's heard the Pauline, uh, you know, everybody wants to read Paul. And so Sam says, you know what? Devious little Sam. He's going to write his own letter. 
And guess what he's going to do to it? He's going to attach Paul's name to it. Okay, so you can see now, if you're just then receiving a letter that has Paul's name on it, how do you know? Is this Pauline Thessalonica, or is this Sam masquerading as Paul? And that happened throughout the church. You have all these spurious works that are written in the New Testament. So even though that they were the originals were immediately accepted, as you had this circulation go outward, you began to have to sit the church, the leaders in the church, the elders in the church had to be going, man, we've got to decide which ones are true and which ones are not. You've got to, and we've got to have some criteria to do that. So what were their criteria? So I have the here written criteria. And they're, they're trying to cast out spurious works and recognize on a wider scale what was immediately recognized by the churches that received them. Okay? So, so what were their criteria? I'll give you four. They had to try to establish apostolic authority. That meant that it either had to be written by an apostle or it had to have some connection to an apostle. So Luke was not an apostle, but we see him as connected to Paul. He was on, with Paul on his journeys, those kind of things. So that kind of thing going on. So you've got to have some connection to apostolic authority. Second, they really looked for historical reliability. And that may not mean a ton to us, but if you ever get reading the Quran, you realize that uh, historical reliability is, is a good thing. Um, they didn't want people just writing off fanciful stuff. Uh, you read the Quran, they've got, I think they've got Moses during the time of Noah, or Noah during the time of Moses. I can't remember which way it went. But it's, it's like historical things are just messed up. So historical reliability. They also demanded theological consistency. And that's interesting because it, it uh, you know, you got the Old Testament moving to the New Testament, so there is new revelation. But they also didn't, they, they, they demanded that it wasn't absolutely contradictory with previous revelation. And that's important because we believe that God never changes. You can change through your situation through history and have different situations, but the, the essence is the same. And so they were, they were actually looking for theological consistency. And, and um, you think, well, that's self-serving. Well, no, it's not, because you're just basically saying that the one God is going to be consistent without. Now, here's, a, here's a, um, one of the problem cases was the book of James. Because everyone used to think, or everyone that reads it wonders if James is contradictory to Galatians. Right? Those are the two, you know, one teaches justification by works alone. The other one teaches justification by works. How do those fit together? So it wasn't that they were trying to smooth out every theological difficulty, but they wanted to, to do their best to, if there was a blatant contradictory statement that they just knew that it couldn't contradict the the scriptures from the Old Testament or other previously established New Testament scriptures as well. Lastly, the other last criteria was that it needed to claim to be divine. 
And that's important for you guys to understand because the, if, if the Bible is God's word, then it is self-authenticating. Which means you don't need to have Mike tell you that it's God's word. And the illustration I use in this is when, when God showed up to Moses in the burning bush, was Moses only convinced that it was God because the bush was burning? Or was he convinced because God spoke to him? And the burning bush was a, was a supplemental you know, statement. I would say it's because when God speaks, it is clear this is God, right? Um, so it's self-authenticating. So they had to have this criteria, and they, over time, began to cast out spurious works. And they could also, based on this whole thing, you've got all these different, um, uh, you've, okay, well, let me back up a little second. Um, so when, when we get to the 27 books of the New Testament, the church largely cast out spurious works rather than established the authority of good works that were God's word. They weren't just saying, oh, now we accept that this is God's word. The word of God was accepted from its very beginning as God's word. Um, there's one example in the New Testament that we don't really know who the author was Anybody want to guess which one that is? Hebrews. And, and a lot of people tried to, t- uh, you know, give it to Paul or Apollos or, you know, different things. But they just weren't sure. In fact, the, it doesn't even say who it was. And so Hebrews got battered around for a long time whether or not it should be in the word of God or not. And they were, and the church did wrestle with this. They were like, it is so clear that it's Christ-centered, so clear that the theology is interwoven with previous scriptures, so clear that it's historically accurate and all these other criteria that they said, okay, even though we don't actually know who wrote Hebrews, it's in. We just can't get rid of it, you know, and so they kept it, but that's rare, you know. So James was, was questioned because of doctrinal stuff, Hebrews questioned because they weren't quite sure of the author, but, um, but these were... Uh, eventually included in the the canon, uh, and we're very thankful that they were. All right, questions on this portion right now? Is this helping you to see what's going on? In in I just, if you you listen to people, especially liberal teachers, they just want to say that the church establishes what is God's word and what is not God's word. And that is just not true. The church recognized what was already accepted as God's word. That's a better way to say that. Okay, so last week, we were finishing up with 
the woman caught in adultery, uh, what they call the first John, Johannine, comma, and then the long ending of Mark. That those were in the Byzantine text. I don't want to go back into that so much right now. I will talk about the Johannine comma maybe a little bit here. But I wanted to give you the, if you have, once you'd establish these books of the Bible are the right ones, then you have to look at, in each book, there are various manuscripts of, or copies, manuscript just means a copy, copies of the original. And so there could be hundreds, if not thousands, of manuscripts of the book of John or the book of Mark and these various things. And so uh, the question that we have, so, so I, I brought a couple Greek New Testaments. So here's a, in your Greek New Testament, they'll just have basically like it was the, the, the original written by, you know, whoever. This is First uh, uh, Corinthians here. So it'd be like, this looks like you might think it's the original written by Paul. To court, but we don't have the original. We have copies of it, and um, and so they'll have. If you look at this New Testament, and I can let you pass this around. If you look at this New Testament, they'll have a, like a line across the page, and then they'll have all this stuff below it. Okay, and and it almost feels like half the page, all the way through here. So I'll just let you look at, it, take a few seconds, and pass it around. Um, and I'll take this one and and. Uh, We'll start it over here and let you guys look at this one. Just to give you a feel, because my goal right now is to try to get you from, we've gotten you to the, the, these are the books of the Bible, New Testament, but we haven't really taken you from the copies to where you are today, okay? And given you confidence that when you pick up your Bible, it is what God has given originally, okay? So you're looking at these, so... They have um, people devoted, actually I don't know anybody personally, that's devoted to something called text criticism. And it's easy, whenever you hear the word criticism, it's easy to think of liberalism. But this is not liberalism. This is just looking at all the different texts of the Bible. These are like the geeks that care. They look at all these different manuscripts and they try to determine which is the best reading of these different manuscripts where they differ. And this is what I want you to get. They have rules by which they decide which manuscript is the one that they, or actually which, which reading in that manuscript they think is the correct one, the original one. It's important for you guys to hear these rules. So the first rule you got, you got this reading, you got this reading. There are differences, right? Between these two, it might just be a small thing. The reading, which is harder to understand, is most likely the original. So first, first rule, more difficult. Because what is the difficult to understand? So what is the... Um, What's the general tendency of an editor is to kind of smooth something out, explain something that might be a little bit more difficult. So sometimes you read your Bible and you think, man, could they not just smooth that out? 
Well, just be thankful that they didn't, because usually the more difficult one is the original. And they actually, most the, the number one rule of textual criticism is that we are going to, by and large, take the more difficult to understand, the, more, the one that's written grammatically not as smooth. You know, it's just, a, it's more difficult. Secondly, the second rule. They're going to look at the reading. That's like the difference. The reading um, from which, from which other readings could develop, could be copied. So they're going to look at like one reading and they're going to say, okay, we can, it makes sense to us that this more choppy one fits here and that, it, that from that they would have added uh, a pronoun or something that they put into the text. So you're looking at the one from which it looks like a source could develop into other readings. It's a little bit harder to understand that one. The third one, shorter readings are preferable. Shorter readings are preferable. And again, not in every case. Um, Especially if you have an intentional change. Like if someone uh, adds something that like gives theological clarity to a text, that's probably something that a, a, some kind of copyist added something. It's usually the shorter one that doesn't explain things quite as well that they would stick with. Then they also... They also look at whole manuscript. What they mean here is um, if, if I copied, I'm not, a, I'm not a, any kind of scribe, if I just started writing a copy of the New Testament, it would be full of errors. I would make all kinds of mistakes. If Benji Thomas started writing and making a copy, he's an engineer, he's detailed, it would be far more likely to be accurate than mine, okay? So we can recognize that. So if, if you're, you know, you're looking at this manuscript and you're like, oh my goodness, there's errors every three verses in this one, and then you look at this one, it's like, whoa, it is consistent with all these other manuscripts looking really good, then we're more likely that Benji's manuscript is going to be the right one than mine. And they do look at that. They look at, like, the, is this manuscript full of errors or is it, is it not full of errors? Um, they also... Look at families of texts. So they check out, um, okay, obviously all these ones that are written in uh, Latin are coming from this age, and they all seem to have the same air. So they're just looking at the big picture a lot of times of manuscripts. And so uh, they'll check... If this is in this family, does, does that manuscript over there have the same error as this one here? And they'll, they'll just compare all these things back and forth. 
Then they'll go back six, and they'll basically repeat the whole process again. So they'll go back up here, and they'll say, ah, was that more difficult one, the better, based on these, all these other criteria or not? And they just keep kind of going back in circles on this, okay? So just to help you understand, there are approximately 140,000 words in the New Testament. 140,000. There are approximately 400,000 variants in all the manuscripts. Okay? You think, well, that's a lot. 99% of those variants are irrelevant. Something along the lines of, he said versus Jesus said, or he said versus he said to them, right? I mean, just they're just that, you know. Of that 400,000 variants, there are only 400 variants that in any way affect the meaning of the passage. Think about that. 400,000 variants in all these different manuscripts, only 400 affect the meaning of the passage. Not one of them affects any major central doctrine of the text that you can't find somewhere else. I'm not saying it doesn't matter doctrinally, but it's, it's, uh, you can build the, uh, that doctrine from another text. You don't have to just base it on that one text. Um, so when we talk about variants, it's important to strike a balance. On the one hand, we must admit that there are variants. Don't be ashamed to admit that we do not have the originals. It's okay. It's not like, well, my faith is based upon just having the originals. No. But we must admit that it is worthwhile to work hard to come as close as we can to the originals. So in other words, all this scholarly work of text criticism is good. We should be thankful for who these guys are. I don't know who they are. <laughs> Anybody if knows somebody works on, you know, I'd like to know who they are. But there's, they literally spend their whole lives working on this issue, and they're doing it today. That's happening right now as we speak. Imagine if I talked to Dr. Kara. He probably knows some of them. Um, so we are dealing with a process, and I'm telling you, you can believe it or not, but I'm telling you that just as much as the original sending it to the apostles, the apostles writing it, the copies being sent to various churches, all of that was under the sovereign hand of God, so is this textual criticism work that they're doing. It's all under the sovereign hand of God. These guys have come down to different types of errors, and they've classified them into two different types, unintentional and intentional. I won't go through all these. Uh, sometimes they made an error because they skipped down two lines rather than one. You know, all kinds of things happen, and they can see it as they're studying this stuff. But, and you've got these books that went around. These geeks, and they are geeks. They have to be geeks. They can't be anything but geeks. So, so they have, they come up with this textual apparatus, and that's everything below the line in that Greek New Testament that you have, okay? And when you look at the stuff below the line, you'll probably go, 
I can't even read it. It looks like gibberish. It's like letters and numbers and just weird stuff all over the place. Well, um, what they do in that textual apparatus is they will like give you a Greek, the, 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 in the text they have a particular Greek word, and then, then the variant is put down in the apparatus. So the variant is put down here, and so they'll give you the, the alternate reading, and then they'll give you like A, D, P51, it's got all these weird things going along, and what they're doing is they're telling you all of those manuscripts use this variant reading. Does that make sense? They're telling you which ones do which, because they don't want to be, they don't want anything hidden, okay? And then they'll say, oh, there may even be a third variant reading, and here's the text that do that one. And they'll tell you. And you're like, okay, I'm getting tired of this. And if you know anything about the Bible that I gave you, Dr. Kerr would always call it the baby Bible because it only gives you the, the most important ones. He's got this huge book that's got a huge apparatus that has all of the variants in it. So it's big. And so he always called ours the baby one, but that's what we use. So anyway, so here's what they do. They give you in the, in the apparatus these variants. You can actually look at them, you can compare them, and I do this a lot when I'm doing Bible study. I'll go down and I'll look at the variant readings and try to see what's going on, because it can be helpful sometimes. But then at the end of the day, they grade themselves. So only geeks would grade themselves, right? So if they are like absolutely certain that they have got the correct one, like this, this is it. We have no doubt that this is the right one. They give themselves an A. Okay? And if they're not 100% sure, if they're only like 90% sure, they give themselves a B. This is where we are on this. We're, we're at a B level, you know. And then, if the committee of geeks had difficulty deciding on which one, so like maybe 50, 60 to 40, we're not sure, they give themselves a C. Okay, and then in a few cases, and they're not really sure, I'm not too many of those, you can, and it's fun to look if you see a D, but if you see a D, it's basically a 50-50 toss-up. They weren't sure. And they show you in those all the time. So um, there are very few of these, by the way. I don't know if it's because they're just confident in themselves or what, but, they, they, you, but you'll see A's and B's and a few C's and a few D's in there, okay? Okay. Um, all that to be said, it's all open. If you really wanted to study this stuff, if you wanted to take the time to look at all the manuscripts, you could do that. We have to, in some sense, trust that these guys are doing their work the way they should do it. And it's not just one denomination. These scholars are, you know, all over the place. This Nestle Land, the one that you have, uh, they actually probably stated the... Um, when they printed this particular Nestle Elan, whatever printing it is, um, they tell you kind of who it is that did this, what committee brought out this particular one. But you could, you know, if anytime there's a new Greek text done, they'd have to tell you again. They'd have to go through this whole process again and tell you again. So, all right. Almost every Bible that you possess today, other than the, the King James and New King James, use all of this effort. And so they were working off of the Greek Bible that I passed around to you. Okay. 
the New King James and King James are working off of what's called the Byzantine text that doesn't use as much of the scholarship, and you can compare the differences between them if you want. There are very few uh, uh, there. Are we following this at all? Is this making sense to you? I'm just trying to help you just see. This is the reality. We're not ashamed of this. I'm confident in the Bible that I have when I read my English Bible. I'm confident that the, they took it from a, a healthy, vibrant, good uh, uh, Greek text that I can be confident in. Okay? Yep. Yes. 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 That's exactly. That's right. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. So if 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 like um, me and the elders got together and got rid of all of the other manuscripts in the world, and we decide to come up with two or three of our own, okay, and we decide to make. Um, in this, these manuscripts, we decide to make it out that infant baptism is absolutely clear in Scripture. And, and so we're, everyone, after reading our manuscripts, will come to the conclusion that infant baptism is true. The Baptists will fall off the face of the planet. Everybody will become Presbyterians. It would be great. Now, I'm just, this is a silly argument. But if you could get rid of all the other, all the other manuscripts, we could do that. You see what I'm saying? It's good that we have all those other manuscripts. It forces, it, it, it says to us, you can't just go make your own and say this is it. Go ahead, Benj. Yes. Yep, it's usually, those are, or it's sometimes a C. You know what I mean? They're, yeah, they won't do it in every case. They'll just do it in the ones that they really were uncertain of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially the ones where the KJV is different, because they, they always want to let you know the ones where it differs from the KJV, so you can see that. Um, yeah. Yep. Okay. So, this being said, there are two types of people that are KJV only people, and I'm only doing this because we live in an area where there are still some plenty of people that are KJV-only people. So, um, first thing I want to state is I like the King James Version. I think it's a good translation. It's, you know, I don't have any problem about that. But some people um, look at the KJV, I think, in light of cultural decline. So the argument goes something like this. In the heyday of spirituality, during the Reformation, during Puritanism, during the early foundation of revivals in America, they used the KJV. And ever since we've gotten away from the KJV, what have we seen? Spiritual decline in America. And so the argument is basically, if you get away from the KJV, it's an inferior translation, and not using the KJV is the reason for the cultural decline. 
And you just need to tell people, the reason for the cultural decline is that we don't believe what the Bible says. Because we're not reading the Bible. It's not because we've just got some kind of inferior translation. It's because we no longer believe it. That's the reason. And just don't, be, don't let people say it's just the KJV's fault. As if if we had not had any other translation, the church would be awesome today. That's, that's no. So this is, these kind of people you want to be patient with, you want to be glad, you be glad that they have confidence in the word of God. And you better be careful to not try to destroy their confidence in their King James Version, because it is a good thing that they have confidence in the Bible. Okay? But I don't think you should let them disrupt your confidence in the ESV, or the Holman Standard Bible. That's, you know, by saying that, look, it's because the church is going down. If we get back to the KJV, um, I've actually talked to people that feel this way, have told me that, that the newer translations do not use strong enough language against moral sin or whatever. I mean, they, they just make these statements, and I say, okay, great. I know the Greek. I go back to the Greek, you know, and you guys can't say that necessarily, but, but this is not the reason for this. You just have to not accept this. Now, but there are, um, and I'm just going to call it Beaky, because Joel Beaky, whom you got, like you guys know, Puritan Reform, uh, and I use um, uh, Bible doctrine books um, that the Beakies put out. Uh, they're like Netherlands Reformed. Um, they are, they are. They don't. I don't call them King James only. I call them King James Preferred. And if you remember, Joel Beakey came and preached in our church. He used the ESV when he preached. So it shows you that he's not this, right? He's, he's here. So he's telling the people um, in, in their circle, uh, and I've got friends in this circle um, myself, they're basically saying because the, um, the King James and the Byzantine text was preserved better throughout the Middle Ages, we prefer that. And they're, they're not like radical. They're not jumping off and telling everybody they're you know, going to hell if they use a different translation. They just prefer the King James. I respect that. I think it's a good thing. So you have to evaluate when someone comes up to you what they're talking about. There is a, there is a brand new movement. Um, well, it's not completely new. Um, it's called the King James uh, Controversy and... This is a King James debate. This is done by D.A. Carson. This is done by James White. And they're trying to, they, I think they're kind of, they're, they're making this debate, but they're trying to connect it to this. And I think that that's the danger. So they're, they're basically saying, look, this God preserved the King James, therefore it's the right one. And then look at how the culture is declining. And so they're kind of bringing those two together. And I just think, Mm-mm. if you want to be beaky-ish, be beaky-ish, that's fine. Just but you don't need to go, don't blame everything on different translations. Blame it on our sin. Blame it on us not studying and reading and submitting to the word of God. That's the real issue. Yes, we did talk about it. So like the, the, the King James basically comes from a Byzantine text. Um, I had in my, I don't know if you saw this. Yeah, so the, it, the text of the um, 
the King James, this comes from all these manuscripts coming out of Byzantium, and, and they're, uh, but they're all like 4th century. There's nothing earlier than that. So the, the, the uh, West Cotton Hort, the one you guys have, ha- uses all the manuscripts, including those. So, and that, that, that diagram comes from the Beaky Bible Doctrine book. So it's very helpful. Okay. Bottom line, trust your Bible. Love your Bible. Read your Bible. Read multiple manuscripts. It is the most glorious document in all of history. People throughout history have tried to destroy the Bible. They have hated it. I forget who it was that said that um, that uh, they would live longer than the Bible or something like that. And no, the Bible, you cannot destroy the Bible. It is God's word. He is preserving it to this day. Don't be fooled into distrusting your Bible. What you should do is diligently study it. There are plenty of things in the Bible that are even hard for me to understand. Uh, You should study your Bible not just by yourself thinking, oh, it's just God and me and I'm going to get it figured out. Every time I study the Bible and teach to you, I am looking at multiple commentaries. I'm trying to get the best scholarship of the world to come in. I'm not looking for liberal scholarship, but sometimes I read liberal scholars, right, to try to see how they're taking it. I'm trying to understand, and that should be you as well. That's the point. We should have confidence in our word, and we should love it, and we should obey it. So, Father, thank you so much, and I do pray that you would help us to have confidence in your word, and even though the world says we're foolish, we have the truth, and we can rely upon it and trust in it. In Jesus' name, amen.